Hola, and welcome to the Beauteous Me podcast, a relatable and authentic space for all. Tune in as we share stories of triumph, resiliency, and healing. We do this all while finding its inner beauty. My name is Jamily Whitfield, and the journey begins now. Hi, guys. Welcome back for another episode of the Beauteous Me podcast. We have an amazing guest. Tamara Houston, who is also a fellow social worker like me. So, of course, I'm super excited. LCSW's in the house. (laughs) Tamara is an experienced clinical social worker licensed in South Carolina, North Carolina, and New Jersey with a demonstrated history of working in the mental health care industry. Tamara's private practice operates on the premise that stress surrounds us daily and can be managed effectively with the appropriate interventions. Tamara enjoys working with adults experiencing a life transition, grief or bereavement, and trauma. Tamara utilizes the following therapeutic frameworks to aid in helping clients alleviate stress in their lives. Cognitive behavioral therapy, solution-focused therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, EMDR techniques, and mindfulness-based practices. Tamara, I'm so geeked out to have you here because it's always good to have somebody in your same field (laughs) having these conversations. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to... um speak with you this morning and your audience and uh, <laughs> conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into branching into building this amazing private practice? Okay, so um I'm from South Carolina and uh mother, wife, all all that good stuff. All that good stuff. <laughs> I got into social work. Um it was one of those things. Um, I, I wish I had like a grand story to tell, but I don't. <laughs> um, you know, I was coming out of uh, college, getting ready to graduate, and I was uh, going to graduate early, about a semester early. So I had to figure out something. Um, of course, like what was my next step going to be? My undergrad is in child and family studies um, with an emphasis in child development. And, um, I was a single parent at the time as well in college. So one of the things that I, that I quickly realized is that, um, also, although I, um, really like the idea of, of studying like human development and people, I like to observe people mm-hmm. that I did not particularly want to work with children or want that to be my life's work is working with children. Um, so I started looking into, um, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, <laughs> different things like that, just trying to figure out what would be a good fit for me. Um, and then just kind of stumbled upon social work, really. And um, I think more on a macro level. Mm-hmm. So I have al- have always been interested in business. Like I actually wanted to be an accountant, actually. <laughs> um, that's a whole nother story. But- yeah, no, because if you think about social work, you don't think about accounting. But you know. people don't understand <laughs> that the social you know. work branch is so big, which is what I like, that you can literally just do anything. Absolutely. And and that really is what appealed to me is that I thought, okay, well, I will still be able to utilize my undergrad degree working with children and families, but I could also do some macro work. Like I was really interested in nonprofit program development. Um, I just have a passion for starting things up and um, seeing that the the whole process of um, that coming to fruition and whether it be my own or helping someone else build that, 
Um, that's really what I was interested in. So decided social work. I did an emphasis uh, or like a, a concentration rather in community empowerment and program development and aging mm-hmm. so, from little children to adults, you know, adults. <laughs> yeah, adults. And um, from there, I honestly never thought about having a private practice. Clearly I was doing the macro side. So it just never really crossed my mind, but um, my grandmother and people that I grew up around with always told me like I had an old soul (laughs) (laughs) acted much older than I was. Mm -hmm. And um, so while I was in grad school though, there was a hospice right down the street, maybe two blocks down the street from my apartment and I wanted to work in hospice so bad. It was just this, um, for me, that brought everything that I was studying like full circle. Mm. And um, in one of my practical experiences, I like really tried to advocate <laughs> to get into hospice to have my um, my practicum be there, but it did not work out. I was told that that was more of a micro focus. So I ended up doing um my practicum in the aging services uh, department. So that, that ended up being a really good experiences uh, experience as well. I ended up being able to do some stuff with what is now like Medicare part D mm-hmm. at the very start of it, when it was just like the, it was either 200 or $500 prescription card. So I actually got to go out into homes and meet with people and um, really meet them where they are. Um, so that brought that concept to light, meeting people where they are and helping them get the services that they need right in their communities. Um, so I did some work with that, but hospice was still on my heart. So um, after graduating, I went on to become a director in a nursing home for a short time. That was um, an interesting experience, to say the least. There's a lot of politics. Bureaucracy and red yeah, tape. Oh, yeah. yeah all of that. So um, that was not sitting well with me. So I was short-lived there, but I got a lot of great experience. I actually kind of continued my work with the Medicare Part D program because it was then coming into South Carolina. So when I left Georgia, it was in place, at least the pilot program was, and then the Medicare Part D started in South Carolina. And um, the consumers had to be enrolled in these different programs. Being that I had that experience already, I I already knew what was going on, what needed to happen and everything. So that really made my job a lot easier. And um, I think I was an asset to um, that organization. But um, an opportunity came up for me and uh, I mentioned accounting. I also thought I wanted to go into nursing as well. So I (laughs) said, well, either I'm going back to school for nursing or I need to find another job doing something else. And I needed to make more money as well. So um, I actually just, I prayed about it. I had everybody in that, I, my coworkers I was close with, I was just like, y'all just pray for me. They'll be like, what are we praying for? I'm like, I don't know. Just, just pray, pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> the opportunity came up for me to interview at the hospice um, in my hometown. I went there, thought I blew it because I cried during the interview. <laughs> Because they asked me something about the work that I was doing in a nursing home. And like I said, uh, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy there. So it it just did not sit well with my heart and my spirit. So um, 
it was something I, I became very emotional about in the interview. Well, I left there thinking I blew it. Right. You were like, oh, Lord, what are they going to say? Yeah, How am I going to get know. a job? I'm out here crying at an interview. Yeah. <laughs> People die every day. You know, that's part of the expectation. So I was just like, oh, that did not go well. Well, weeks later, um, it's probably about a month, actually, I ended up getting the call for the job. And I also got my acceptance letter to nursing school. Wow. No, it was the same day. <laughs> what? The same day. And, I, um, of course, I was talking to my husband about it. And I was like, you know, I just kind of feel like this nursing thing is like, you know, like I should go for it and do it. And he was like, look, you can always go back to school. Anytime you can go back to school. But this, like you've been talking about this as well for a while, and you never know when you're going to get this opportunity again with hospice. So I actually, um, I will say, started my uh, my training for clinical work in hospice. Mm. Say that because there's nothing that happens in hospice that I um, have not seen in clinical work. Thing. You're talking about interpersonal relationships. You're talking about finances. You're talking about end of life. You're talking about um, just, you know, coping, just being able to cope with life, being able to cope with the future, what was going to happen, what's expected to happen. Um, same stuff, substance abuse, just I, it, it, it was a full awesome. gamut. It is a full gamut because yeah, so like, everything that comes with the family comes with, you know, the patient, mm-hmm. etc. So that was the perfect training ground for me. I spent eight years in hospice, worked my way up um, in a few different positions. So I had wonderful experience in hospice, but um, I also get bored. So it was kind of like, oh, uh, what do you next? What are you going to do next? And um, I was very blessed while I was there because I I will say going on to get my master's in social work, there has not been a job since that I've had that I actually searched for that people were coming to me. Mm. It was just my, my work ethic um, and just being an advocate for the people that I that I served. I think, you know, kind of work kind of got around about that. Um, that I'm really passionate about the work that I do. Um, so an opportunity came up for me to work for the state. So I ended up leaving hospice and working for the state for um, about a year. And um, then the whole practice thing came up because my my clinical supervisor. So, you know, in social work, in order to get your um, LC, like your, yeah, you have to be supervised by someone. So my clinical supervisor um, reached out to me and this was after my supervision. So I had my LISW at that time, but she reached out to me on my birthday <laughs> and told me that it was a um, psychiatrist in the area that was looking for a clinical social worker to do some contract work. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Cause at that point I had started a whole lot of stuff. I had actually gone back to school at that point. Um, what did you go back to school for at that point? Listen, <laughs> So, okay, this is how this thing went down. So I um, started Southern Wesleyan for um, an MBA program because at that point I was like, okay, so I'm going to start this business and it would be great if I have like this degree to like back me up and all this stuff. So I started the um, left hospice working for the state. 
I started school. And then a few months after that, I found out I was pregnant with my third child. So all of this stuff is happening. All at once. Talk about dropping things on you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and I, um, my supervisor was reaching out to me about this opportunity. So I'll tell you what I did. I, she gave me um, the guy's number, wrote it down, and I stuck it in my jean pocket. Didn't think anything about it. A few weeks went by and um, I was downstairs in the bathroom. And for whatever reason, I reached into my pocket and I found, and there goes a piece of paper. And I'm looking at the paper. I was like, mm. I was like, you know what, God, like I'm always getting myself into something. You know what? This meant to be. be. I crumbled up the paper and I threw it in a trash can mm. sometime during that week. That Saturday, I was headed out to do something. I never answer my phone if I don't know the number. Call it. Whatever reason, I picked that phone right up and he was like, hi. And this was on a Saturday. He was like, hey, this is such and such, Dr. Such and Such. I was like, what? <laughs> so I was like, hold on for a minute. And I was like, okay, God, clearly you you did exactly what I asked. Um, I just spoke to him very shortly. And, you know, I said, well, hey, do you want me to tell you about my experience? I, he was like, no. He said, um, you know, your my supervisor at the time, she was like, she told me everything I need to know. And I trust her. So if you want to come by, check out the office, do that one day next week, and we'll go from there. Wow. And how I got started. So I was doing contract work for about um, three years. Um, and during that time, I wanted to go in a different direction in terms of how I practice and, and the demographic that I wanted to serve. So I started a mobile practice. I was used to going into homes. So that was no big deal for me. Um, so I did that for about a year. And um, then I reached out to a friend to ask her a question about a building. And she was like, hey, if it's a building you need, I got you. Like things just, it, it's crazy how all this Wow, stuff I love it. Yeah, so I subleased from her for a year. And then from there, I had people that I had been associated with over the years reach out to me. Um, and I just kind of transitioned into growing a, a group practice. And, and none of that was my intention. So I tell people all the time I do consulting work as well. And I'm like, I'm going to tell you my story. <laughs> and but, but My I, story is not going to be your story. My, my story is not going to be your story. Yeah, I learned a lot along the way, which is I'm grateful for because from, from my experiences, I've been able to actually start another business and work with other um, practitioners and practice that either want to start a practice or they want to expand their practice. So it's been a blessing all the way around. So that's how I got into it, how I went from solo to group. And um, yeah, and recently had to pivot to telehealth, but we're still, we're still rolling. I mean, but- oh, right. mm-hmm. so I love that you shared your story and you shared, you know, the different intricacies because um, like I said, social work can be multifaceted, multi-pronged approach and everything. And you really have to kind of find your niche and where you want to be. But part of that niche um, is obviously we're touching clients' lives. And from touching clients' lives, um, trauma can happen to us as well. Vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, et cetera. And I know you and I had spoken a little bit about it months ago when we were first planning um 
for the podcast, but I'm just going to give a definition for folks who don't know what vicarious trauma is. Um, Vicarious traumatization is a transformation in the self of a trauma worker or helper that results from empathic engagement with traumatized clients and their reports of traumatic experiences. It is a special form of countertransference stimulated by exposure to what the client's traumatic material. So let's talk about that because vicarious trauma is real. And I think it's, I think if you've had vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue before with the pandemic and the pandemic of racism and coronavirus, this is both a pandemic at this point, um, things have really heightened and exacerbated. So tell me a little bit about um, your practice and um, a little bit of the work with the vicarious trauma. Okay. So um, when we first spoke about trauma, what we, the topic for today, um, I don't I don't think we were actually in the midst of COVID at that time. And so um, the work around vicarious trauma is was really centered around like nursing mm-hmm. and um, as the helping professional like demographic. And so in the work that I do, I really expand um, that base. It is, of course, not just nurses, but it's, you know, clinicians. It is um, yogis, it's uh, spiritual healers. So I think we have a broader base to work with, for one, um, and find it really necessary to um, do this kind of work. And so I really try to... Um, uh, I guess, try to break trauma down to more of an elementary type um, understanding when I'm talking about trauma to people and that we can look at the DSM and, you know, all the different type of trauma diagnoses, but I just put it in the context of you have like your big T traumas and you have your little T traumas. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we think about the big T trauma, we're, we're thinking about like wartime experience. um, You know, maybe if there's like, um, some type of violent experience, some, you know, something along those lines. But the little T trauma is what I tend to speak to my clients about more so because that's going to be, show up more in like their everyday life, just their um, just life stressors. And we start the work by actually trying to identify what those things are for people. And so surely now what I have seen in my work and trying to normalize this for people is that it is okay that it's okay for you to label what you are experiencing as trauma. It is not your norm. It is definitely not something that you ask for. <laughs> you know, nobody asks for COVID. Nobody asks for the other pandemics that, that we're dealing with. But it is um, something that's real that's happening to you. And there has to be an acknowledgement of how that is impacting all the parts of your life. There is a um, some work that came out of this. It's called the self-care wheel. And I use that so often with people. And at the bottom, you'll see, um, if you look that up, it's actually called the self-care wheel. Mm-hmm. But at the bottom of um, this uh, wheel, rather on this piece of paper, it talks about it coming out of originating from work out of vicarious trauma, but it, it also looks at the different parts of us. So it's looking at the emotional pieces, the financial pieces, um, spiritual, emotional, all of those different pieces and how they are being impacted or can be impacted by trauma and the necessity for us to not only identify 
what those areas are that have been impacted by trauma because one part impacts the whole. Um, but also the things that a person can do to kind of enhance or support that particular area. So someone may say, okay, well, I don't, you know, I don't always, I don't feel that stressed out or, or whatever, but I, I, say, I say, okay, well, let's look at the, the whole life. Okay. So you go to the gym, may not right now, but you know, you go to the gym, you make sure you go to the gym you know, seven days a week and you're working out for two or three hours a day after you get off from work, but then you go home and your relationship is a mess. Well, you cannot um, separate those two parts out because you are a person at the gym, you're a person at work and you're a person at home. Mm-hmm. Three different people that are showing up. Absolutely. They're showing up in all of these different spaces and you have to, you know, at some point kind of think, well, why is it that I can go and spend so much time working on the physical part of me, but then I don't go to this other space and work on that social and emotional, that interpersonal part of me. All of these things impact one another. And I think it's even more complicated when you are a helping professional um, because just by definition, you as a helping professional dealing with vicarious trauma is you are impacted and taking on the trauma and burden of the people that you are helping. And it's, and it's just because of the work that you do. Again, it's not that you're asking for it. Like as a social worker, I cannot sit here and say that I'm not impacted by some of the stories that I hear from my clients. Right. Absolutely. Bring up stuff for me. Um it hurts for me too. Mm-hmm. I know as a social worker in my profession that I have to do things to take care of myself and not carry that burden. But there are so many fields in helping professionals and just, you know, for a lay person, they're not thinking about that. Life before COVID was you get up, you take your children. If you have children, you drop them off where they go. You go to work. It was just a routine thing. And all these things are being impacted by the different pandemics that we are experiencing today, for sure. And I think it's important that you say that because the stories coupled by our own stuff, because a lot of times when you think about a social worker, someone in the helping field, we're considered wounded healers, right? We want to go in, mm-hmm. we, want, we want to help someone else. We've overcome something, but there are stories each and every day that a story might sit with you that's similar to either your trauma, which is like the counselor transference piece, but also just hearing it time after time, after time, after time can impact you. And it's important for self-care. And you said something that was poignant is that, you know, we're taught in the social work field all about self-care, self-care, self-care. But if you're in a different kind of setting, that's more business like minded, self-care is not at the forefront. That's not important. That's not valued for a social worker to go take time off. If you have 500 patients that need Mm -hmm. to see you, that there's things that have to be done. And I think, you know, mental health awareness is growing more, Um, But we have to be a little bit more proactive, if you will, in ensuring that we are promoting mental health awareness, promoting self-care, because it doesn't have to just be in the social work field. It's your psychologist. It's your psychiatrist. It's your doctors. It's your nurses. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the vicarious trauma that the nurses and doctors are feeling? And so their, their goal is, 
I'm here to save a life. Boom, go. I'm here to save a life. Boom, go. Absolutely. And we think about, yeah, Mm -hmm. you think about attorneys who are representing maybe uh, DACA or ICE um, Mm -hmm. and everything that's going on, that trauma, police brutality, that trauma. And so you you hear these stories, you see the clients, you're dealing with them in this micro level because they're coming to you with... Um, mm-hmm. I have family problems, but then when you start like deep rooting and seeing where it all stems from, you start seeing that this person might've experienced, um, besides trauma, racism at work. And so their trauma can be highlighted even more with the racism that they've seen at work, which could, which could then tra- transfer into other behavioral issues um, and I mean, and I don't say behavioral like, you know, kids that are tantruming, but mental health behavior, um, oh, sure. it, 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 it really is impacted. And so when we talk about vicarious trauma and the work that we also have to continue to do to practice that self-care, it's really, really important. And I'm glad that you brought that up, that it's not only for our field, but it's it's with a lot of people right now. Absolutely. And I, I will add um and this has just been from my experience, me personally being there, but I also provide supervision and just um, amongst social workers, amongst clinicians mm-hmm. is um, not taking on these burdens so that we forget to take care of ourselves. I think even though we are taught that, we can oftentimes be the worst <laughs> at actually doing it. Because it it is it's ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. As much as you know, I told my story about getting into private practice. The my whole point in social work is I could go into different areas. At the end of the day, I identified myself as a helper. I've always identified myself as a helper, but helpers need help as mm-hmm. well. And so um, I just want to you know put push that point that. Being in these positions, yes, you have to um, do your job. You show up. You want to be the best that you can be. But also, if your cup is not full, then you can't give other people the best of what you have to offer, which means that you have to be okay first. And that's something that we constantly have to check in with ourselves to make sure that we're good so that we can show up and give people all the extra that we have because that's that's really how the work should be. We're good, so you're getting the best of the extra that we have. Absolutely. And when we're not good, we can make some detrimental decisions in a client's what? life. And that's just <laughs> you know, if you think about and and just really getting into the systemic piece of it, you look of a uh, child protective services workers who have a high mm-hmm. caseload. You have a high caseload, you gotta do this, you gotta assess if your caseload is this high. And you have multiple families to see, multiple traumas coming at you in so many different angles. How are you able to fully make the right decision for that child's well-being and that family? When you have those stressors, that trauma, you're not you're not thinking of the whole big picture. That's true. And that so I, I you know, I always like put that out there. So when talking about co- trauma, compassion, fatigue, um, let's get a little bit into the importance of mental health, because mm-hmm. I like your shirt. If <laughs> it's okay to not be okay, right? <laughs> it is so okay to not be okay. And it's okay to own that. And I think it's important for people to, especially now with everything that's going on, it's okay to tell somebody that you're not okay. And 
besides with with COVID happening and then racism is not just new guys, you know, with, right, with right, right. everything coming across with the protests and the way that people are heightening this situation and, and the divide in this nation, um, mm-hmm. people really trying to do their inner work. You know, there's a lot of conversations and I've had conversations with other folks on anti-blackness in the Latino community, mm-hmm. you name it, all of that is impacting someone because now you're even more heightened. You're going to work. And and if someone who's white is going to say something, are you going to take it the wrong way? Because all of this heightened, these heightened elements are Mm -hmm. impacting us. Mm-hmm. And so it, I like that you say it's okay to not be okay. <laughs> it's okay not. It's okay not to be okay. And I tell you, one of the illustrations that I that I use for my clients, I use for my supervisees and amongst some um, uh, professional support groups, is that if you can imagine being on a ledge or cliff and like having your toes hanging, gripping the edge of the cliff. This is where we are. <laughs> yes. We are just that person on the cliff, just got, gripping. Gripping. And it's not even like, you know, and, and, and some of us are in worse positions than that. But I think being there, you have to know that that system that we have of, of alarm, you know, and then some of us have that system that misfires with anxiety that's saying there's... um. You know, there's something that you need to be aware of. So you have a heightened awareness about something or there's fear or you're anticipating that something is going to go wrong, that we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop or the other shoe has already dropped. Right. It's just we are waiting for the next thing to happen, which makes us so much more quick to go off, to lose it, to have, you know, what, what they say, a nervous breakdown, yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever you want to call it. And, and I have like really tried to move away from, from minimizing how people label their stuff <clears throat> instead of trying to be so clinical about everything or using the clinical language because that's what resonates with them. It's just, if you can imagine just being on the ledge and just hanging on for dear life and not knowing what's going to happen because there are so many uncertainties that are going on right now. It's not just a virus that is here that we have to be aware of. It is that, but it's also what's going to happen with our jobs. Right. So what is, um, what's going to happen with our homes? So when we go back and we look at Maslow's work, right. And those hierarchy of needs guys. (laughs) Right. So when we go back and look at that and those basic needs that need to be met, those things now are being threatened for so many people. Thank you for saying that. Yes, yes, yes. So it is, if I don't know that I'm going to have a job to pay for a home, to buy food, to, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have money. You know, I've been going, I have been seeing, you know, a therapist or being seeing somebody if I don't know that I'm going to have the resources to be able to provide for the basic needs there's no way you can ask me or expect of me to functions to function at my highest level of self of actualization is what it what it says on the hierarchy of needs but to be in that place where 
I am aware, I am secure, I am I am confident, I can advocate for myself. Those things end up being put on the back burner because now we are at survival of the fittest, right? And when you think about like the cavemen and women and how they had to operate, it really was like I'm in the jungle and I'm I'm trying to do what I need to do to survive. Mm-hmm. So there are many things that are coming out of people now that they did not recognize before or they ignored or just, just didn't have the wherewithal to even deal with such things. It's let me get to work. Let me make this bread. Let me take care of X, Y, and Z. Like, let me do these things because it could have been even before all of this that it was still a struggle and right. meeting those basic needs. So all of these things have been just um, really confounding in such a way that it is just so much stress on people. So one thing when when people reach out to me, I offer a lot of praise in the beginning about that, that you just reached out. Right. And that's important. Understanding, to that. Yeah, that, you know, renewal life counseling may not be the best fit for you. And I am so cool with that. I'm just glad you reached out because guess what? I'm still a helping professional and I can help you find the best fit that I don't have a problem with. But the fact that you actually took the time to research, to reach out, to call or whatever, like you are so far ahead of the game just by doing that, because there's so much acknowledgement and awareness in that. I'm just not okay, And, 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 and not being okay does not correlate to you being crazy, whatever, whatever that means. So I work with people around. Let's define that. Like when you say crazy. What are you talking about exactly? What does that look like to you? Because we need to stop with this stigma that if you talk to a professional, that something is wrong with you. Right. And we have to destigmatize that because, again, it's okay to have a, the same way you're speaking to a friend, you're speaking to someone else. The, the, it's cultural too, you know, like some cultures, you keep what's right. in the family, you keep what's going on here, you don't spread people's business. And I think people, um, feel that if I go to someone, I'm spilling my family business. I'm shaming my family. I have to open myself up to that vulnerability because I've been taught and engraved that suck it up, keep it moving. You keep family stuff inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of that is so real. And and these are things I think, you know, people come to the table and I think many times um, they don't know what they need. And we, you know, it's like putting putting a, a puzzle together, just trying to help people figure out, you know, first of all, where where are you now? Mm-hmm. Figure out where you are now. And then we can determine what the missing pieces are and really try to bolster those pieces. And, and if it's not the therapy that's going to help with that, um, we're still case managers too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to resources that, you know, we ain't learned nothing else. We learned Absolutely. that helping you get connected to resources so that you can get those needs met for sure. So it is addressing that shame and that guilt element of not being able to provide, not being able to hold it together like you talked about or, or feeling like, well, what does this mean about my, my spiritual peace then? If I see a therapist, does that mean that I don't believe in God? How, or, or whatever you believe in, how about we, the helping professional is just another resource for you. That got put on this earth. Help. help, help Absolutely. Help so 
it's being able, it's helping people to reframe these ideas that they that they come to us with that you know it's it's black and white it's not black and white there's a whole lot of gray talk about the gray to help you figure out just so that you can again just show up as your best as your best self like there was you know that um the 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 song I'm living my best life <laughs> We literally are trying to help you live your best life. And a lot of that is not so, so much the, the tangible things. It is the cognitive things and the emotional processing of that that has became distorted. And we just need to challenge those um, those cognitions and the way you process emotionally and figure out a different way to do it because how a person has been d- doing that up to a certain point, it, it just kind of keeps them on the merry go round where they're not really resolving anything. They're just stuck in one place. And we're like, let's get off the merry go round and let's go forward. You know, let's go in a different direction and try it and see if it works. Um, and how all of this, you know, relates back to the vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue is that, um, you get tired of caring. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no, you, like, you were saying it and it's right. And I think um, when I've experienced vicarious trauma, you're just like, I just, I, I can't do this. I can't, you know, it's, it, yeah. you get tired of caring. You get tired of mm-hmm. caring. And this is where, where we are. People are tired of COVID. I had just got off off the phone with a friend. (laughs) She was like, what you doing? I said, I'm up here working. I said, what you doing? I'm working. I was like, you know what? We have nothing going on. Like we're just tired of of this. We're tired of this. And, and, and that mindset, um, not that it's a bad thing, but it can, if you're not careful, create the, um, the breeding ground for things like the compassion fatigue and the vicarious trauma and just escalate it to another level. Absolutely. So we've touched on vicarious trauma. We've talked on little traumas and the importance of mental health awareness and the importance of self-care, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, getting up to Mm self-actualization, which of course, as we've talked about, the most basic needs are being threatened at this point. So can you give us three tools, techniques that people can take away um, to kind of support them during this time? Absolutely. Um, For me, this this is a big one for me um, is we call it grounding or different grounding techniques. And there's a thousand Mm -hmm. of them. Okay. I just want to share a a real simple one. Um, And it is uh, being able to, I'll just, instead of going through a whole one, but just being able to connect with something um, tangible. And the reason why I think this is so important is that it helps to keep us in the moment. And I think when you can focus on what is going on in the moment, then that brings about a sense of control. And so what that may look like is just like, um, I'm just sitting in my chair right now, is just having my feet planted on the ground. And just kind of thinking about like, what does that feel like to have my feet on the ground? And then imagining if there were like roots coming from my feet, like going into the floor, like really helping me to be secure in this moment. It's um, interesting how we can just be so disconnected from the moment. 
right? And what I hear a lot with clients is I just feel like I don't have any control over anything. So the grounding is something that I typically start with and something that I end with. It's just really helping a person to be focused in what's going on right now. What do I have control over right now? Another um, technique along those same lines is uh, you may remember like back in kindergarten, I think it was kindergarten, maybe pre-K when I first learned how to make a turkey with my hand. (laughs) So you you get your hand on a piece of paper and you outline your hand. The inside of your, on the outline is that's your internal boundary. And so inside of that is where you're going to list the things you have control over. Outside in the white area, outside of your hand is where you're going to list the things that you have no control over. And again, it helps to establish a boundary. And it's a reminder of something visual. Um, I have many people say, oh, this was so elementary, you know what I mean? But they get a lot out of it because it's not so complicated to just look at something and be like, you know what? I have no control over, you know, this person wearing a mask or not wearing a mask because we will get so you know, by that. And, you know, for various reasons, but it's what do I actually have control over? You don't have control over anybody else wearing a mask or not, but you have control over whether you do or not. That's something that you have control over. Um, I would say uh, another thing would be um, to practice gratitude. Um, And you can do so in uh, various forms of journaling, either if that's in narrative form um, actually kind of like writing out um, your day or, or things that have gone on. Um, but I also like the bullet form of, of journaling where it's just the points. But I think having a gratitude journal, um, my homework for clients is every day you write down one thing. You know, you may be able to think of 50, but at least write down one thing that you are grateful for for today. Because um, our experiences of the day and the the negative things that happen can color our entire day. It can color our entire week. It could be something that happened yesterday and I'm still mad about it today. You know what I mean? And if you've ever had that experience where you ask somebody, well, how are things going? And they tell you, and it's like one thing happened and that one experience just ruined their entire day. So the goal is if you can write down something every single day, then at the end of the week, You can go back and look at that list or look at that journal and be like, you know what? I had seven great things (laughs) that happened this week or seven things that I can like look back. And then you're just kind of keeping that from week to week to week so that you have these reminders that all is not bad. These are not very comfortable times. They have definitely like pushed up against our boundaries for sure, um, have upset our routines for sure. But there's still great things and some blessings and opportunities that are coming out of this time and these pandemics that we are experiencing. So I think it's a great thing to keep account of of those. And I would say the third thing is, um, and this is more so for really for someone who is employed, is um, if you have the opportunity to access like and eat your, it's called employee assistance through your job that use that it is one of the most underutilized benefits that 
have as employees um, and we don't tap into it. In fact, I think of of all the you know workforce in the United States, it is utilized by two percent. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity there. Not only can it help with like your the mental health aspect, there are other things that other services and benefits that are available through EAP. But my point is, if you have any skepticism about talking to someone, if you're like, you know, I don't know where to start. This is a program that can assist you with where to start. It gives you an opportunity to try someone out. If you don't like them, then you can try somebody else. It's free and it's confidential. And that is something that we need to kind of move away from this idea of, you know, we are bound by so many laws, <laughs> right? We can't just go and share your business with anybody. That's how this thing works. So if there's a way for you to get connected with someone that is um, educated and has a specialty around the things that, that are that you're dealing with right now, this is a great opportunity to utilize those services. And it's brief and it's solution focused. So if you're not interested in long drawn out, you know, therapy or whatever, you don't have to worry about that with EAP. It is literally like you share what, what your needs are and then someone to kind of help you help give you tips and recommendations and maybe even resources to pursue to get your needs met and, and kind of get better in that particular area. So I think that that would be my my three things is find a grounding technique that that works for you. I mentioned two, but there may be others that you can research, practice gratitude um, and maybe specifically in journaling form. And also reach out to EAP so that you can try something new to help deal with some of the issues that that may be before you right now. Love it. Thank you so much. So you said where can where can you find you? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, well, I am. Uh, the name of the practice is Renewal Life Counseling. It is a group practice. So, of course, we have a website, which is the namesake. Um, we're also on Facebook. It's um, at Renewal Life Counseling on Facebook. Um, on Instagram, it is Renewal Life. And that's R-E-N-E-W-A-L Life underscore R-L-C. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So that's Tamara Houston. And um, we're also Twitter, which is the same. Um, so we're everywhere. Platforms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tamara, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your knowledge, for you sharing your expertise, for leaving us some good knowledge nuggets to use for ourselves, it, social workers listening to use with clients, um, and ways that people could find you. And as she mentioned, she does some consulting. So if you do want to open up your own private yes, practice, uh, hit her up, um, so that you can, Speak to someone, pick her brain, and kind of see where you set your pathway. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd be happy to work with anyone. I actually have, um, just a side note, uh, one mentorship slot open right now, actually. So if there's someone out there that um, is interested in mentorship, and of course, that's free. There's no cost for that. But I do keep two slots open for that Um Again, along the way, I've had many mentors that helped me out. And so that's just my way of giving back if I can. So um, if you're interested, then you can reach out to me. That's on Houston Consulting and that's also on Facebook. So you can message me there and I'll get back with you and we can connect and set up a time to talk. Yes, guys, did you hear free, 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 free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope this episode fed your soul. Please be sure to download new episodes. You can also head on over to rate, review, and subscribe. For more updates, find us at www.iambeauteousme.com or on Instagram at iambeauteousme. Don't forget to use the hashtag beauteousmepodcast for your feedback.